You guys like parades? <laughs> Anybody like parades? I like parades. All right, well, we're going to talk about a parade of sorts, kind of. It's the closest thing in our culture and knowledge that we have to compare it to. That's what we're going to talk about today, but it's a very special parade. It's our Messiah's Victory Parade. And we're going to talk about what part do we play in this parade, because we're a part of it. Who are the other characters in the parade? What does this all look like? To do that, we'll go here to 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about this in chapter 2. And I added some context here at the beginning, which we'll also talk about. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? So let's start out by looking at what context uh, surrounds these verses, mainly what comes before it. What are some of the things Paul's talking about here? So we're in 2 Corinthians, um, which in our Bible is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. But some people think, a lot of people think, that he actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth, and two of them were lost. We just, we don't have those. So we can't be for sure, but what we do know is there was a lot of issues at the church in Corinth, right? There were divisions among them. There were different kinds of immorality. False teachers had infiltrated the church at Corinth, and part of what they did was they turned or tried to turn the church at Corinth against Paul and challenge his apostolic authority, which is a lot of what he addresses in 2 Corinthians. And it's safe to say through things that Paul says over and over again that seeing to it that these issues in this church were resolved was really important to him. It was a central mission to him. Um, He was grieved over these things. And it's thought that he sent one of those lost letters with Titus to the church in Corinth. And that's what he's talking about here. He was awaiting a response from Titus about how is the church at Corinth going to receive this letter that I've written to them that was probably pretty challenging and corrective. And are they going to repent? Are they going to come back into line? And he was waiting to hear from Titus about that. And it says later on in 2 Corinthians, actually in chapter 7, gives us a little insight into how much this affected Paul. It says that when he arrived in Macedonia, like what he talks about here, after leaving Troas, that his flesh had no rest. It said that he had fears on the inside and conflicts on the outside. And I think that at least in part, all of that apprehension was partly due to his feelings about the Corinthian church. How is this going to turn out? Are they going to continue in all these different ways of rebellion? And he really, really wanted to hear from Titus about what their response was going to be and if they were going to correct themselves, come back into line. In addition to all of that, um, if you kind of track Paul's letters with his journeys in Acts, you can line this up with 
of this journey from Troas to Macedonia comes right after Paul has left Ephesus. And what was happening in Ephesus when he left there to go to Troas was he, there was this huge riot in the city. Um, there was all this commotion. And some of his traveling companions were drug off by this angry mob. And Paul's own life was in danger. The people that were there ministering with him were saying, you don't show your face, don't speak up because they'll kill you. So I'm telling you all of this context to ask you a question. I mean, does this all sound like it's going great? I mean, does this sound like, man, I am really triumphing in the Messiah (laughs) and I'm just knocking it out of the park here with my ministry? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty chaotic. It sounds like it's a type of situation or a recipe for defeat where Paul could become full of self-pity, kind of like Elijah did after he has this awesome thing at Mount Carmel. And then he's like, well, I'm the only prophet that's still alive and Jezebel wants to kill me and I just want to die. (laughs) But he doesn't do that, right? There's so many other places where maybe he could have talked about this triumphal procession in a context that was more triumphant. At least it looks like it to our eyes, but, but he doesn't. He does it here. He could have stayed longer in Troas to minister through this open door before him, but he was so apprehended by this concern for the church at Corinth that he goes on. You know, he's just endured this riot, but it's still here that he chooses to talk about this procession of the triumphant Christ and how he's caught up in it. That no matter where he goes and whatever happens, the purpose is the triumph of God prevails through him. And uh, he just continues to live his life in devotion to that, no matter what things look like. So that's that context. I mean, how, when you're living your life in devotion to God, and maybe you're ministering or whatever it may be, and when challenge comes and when chaos comes, do you still see yourself in the triumphal procession of Christ? It's kind of the thing I want to get at there that I want you to think about. So let's move on into talking about an overview of the triumphal procession. Like, what can we glean right from the surface of this analogy that Paul's using, this really creative metaphor, things that he's so, so good at that he uses to teach? So this analogy of the triumphal procession is patterned after a Roman triumph. And in today's terms, probably what we would see as closest to the Roman triumph is like a military parade with all the military regalia, like the soldiers and things like that. Um, A lot of records of Roman triumphs are kind of an amalgamation of several different triumphs mashed into one kind of record. There's different aspects all in this one record. But there is a good little, this is kind of cool, a picture of this is a specific Roman triumph. So this is what's called a relief And the word relief comes from a Latin word, which means raised. So the medium in the background, it's a kind of sculpture. The medium is in the background, and then they use the same medium to build the sculpture on the front. And it looks like it's raised. It's a relief. And this is on um, something in Rome called the Arch of Titus. And what it is, is it's it's depicting one of these uh, Roman triumphs. But something I want to point out to you here, what is this? Does this look familiar? It's a menorah, right? Okay, so that's what that is. So this specific relief is a record to the triumph that occurred after General Titus 
Um, he put down the Jewish revolt in 70 AD that resulted in the sack of the temple and the raising and total destruction of the temple. And that's what this is recording. I found that to be really interesting that roughly 15 years before that happened, Paul was using this analogy of the Roman triumph to describe something that Jesus did, to describe his victory. I just think how interesting it would have been to be a Christian within that culture and (laughs) make that connection to have had access to Paul's letter or heard that and then see this happen, what that would have been like to live during that time. So to go on and talk more about what the triumph consisted of, it largely had three parts to it. So the first one is the victorious general, right? The general that led the troops and that won the war. So there's the victorious general and his spoils come next. So spoils could be all kinds of different things. Mainly, they were the royalty, the leaders of whatever people had just been conquered and their families, but it could also be treasures that they found in the land, kind of like this, the menorah there and the other things they're carrying. Um, it could be exotic things from the land, like animals and produce, stuff like that. And the third part of the triumph was uh, the soldiers, the soldiers that went along with the general to fight. Those are the three kind of overview parts. And What's interesting here is that Paul chooses to see himself as part of the spoils. That's, that's how he sees himself as being captive to Christ, as one who's been conquered. And he's going to go on here in 2 Corinthians to frame this around himself as, mainly as an apostle. But I think that we too, I think it's helpful for us also in our walk to see ourselves as captives to Christ to see ourselves as being led by him. I mean, do you see yourself that way? You are. If you're saved, you were conquered by him. And everything in these Roman triumphs was put on display to glorify the general. And you being led by your victorious Messiah is no different, right? When we're made new in him, we become objects objects of his glory. We become a testimony of his power, his goodness, his truth for everyone to see. We're his walking testimony. And we're captives because we were once enemies, right? We were once enemies of the gospel, but now we're captives. And if you continue to follow this analogy, something interesting happens. Um, When I was writing this out, I thought of C.S. Lewis because he said that he was a reluctant convert he said that he was drug kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He came in, but he was this reluctant convert. Now, that might not be true for all of us. It could be true for some of us. But once he has conquered us, we become willingly obedient. At one point, he takes us captive, and then we take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to him because we've become willing to participate. We want to follow Because at the end of his triumph, we're not going to be sacrificing bulls and human beings to the God of Jupiter like the Romans did. We're going to be living in eternity with our God the way that we were meant to from creation. So we want to follow. We want to participate in what he's doing. So you can kind of see yourself as at one point being an enemy, then being conquered and captive. And then you almost kind of join the ranks of the soldiers, don't you? Paul doesn't take it that far, but I could almost kind of see ourselves in that role as well. 
Um, seeing yourself as a soldier, I think if you continue to develop the analogy too far, it eventually breaks down because I don't see us necessarily taking orders and using physical force to overcome our enemies or anything like that. But you could think of it like servanthood. We're his servants. Um, we are about the same purposes that he's about. We are of the same mind that he is. And that main purpose that he's about is the Great Commission. It's about bringing in the nations into the kingdom. And we're soldiers, and we're participating in that in a certain sense. So that's kind of a general overview of the different parts of the triumph and kind of how we can see ourselves as part of that. So that's one layer. You can glean that just by thinking a little bit about what's on the surface of this analogy. But you can go one level deeper through just a simple exercise. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to take just like 30 seconds. What I want you to do is read through this. Start at verse 14, right here. I want you to read through it to yourself, and I want you to try to recognize what's the theme. What is one common theme in this section of Scripture? All right, I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> um, it starts here with aroma. You see that word? As you continue to read, you see the word fragrance. You continue, and you see the word aroma again, and the word aroma again. It's kind of repetitive, and it can tell you, like, okay, there's a theme developing here. And once you spot that, this will give you a really good place to start studying on a deeper level in a particular section of Scripture. Something really simple that you can do is just go to a concordance and look up other occurrences of the word fragrance and explore the theme, and it will deepen your understanding of more than one story. It's just a great way that the Bible works. So fragrance was also a part of the Roman triumph. So there was people in this parade who had uh, incense diffusers <clears throat> that they would carry. And also throughout the city, they were burning incense to the Roman gods. So this fragrance permeated, the fragrance of victory permeated the entire atmosphere. And it was just this sensory experience that was so overwhelming, and it all spoke of victory. So that's another element here that Paul is drawing out. <clears throat> and he's specifically referencing his work as an apostle being acceptable to God, but I don't think it's a stretch, again, to see our lives as we give ourselves for the furtherance of the gospel and in devotion to the Lord, that that is also acceptable and pleasing to God. That's a pleasing aroma to him. So we are this aroma among those who are both being saved and among those who are perishing. So think about that. That's kind of an interesting thing, right? It's all the same fragrance, but it has two completely different effects. They're total polar opposites of each other. Same fragrance. So if you follow, if you do look up fragrance in your concordance and you follow that and see where else is that talked about in uh, the New Testament, this is one of the places it's going to take you. And I think this provides a fantastic example of what the fragrance of devotion does. It's going to take you to John chapter 12 and the story of Mary Magdalene anointing the feet of Jesus. So let's just read through that. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, 
pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put into it. So notice here, it says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's like that fragrance is diffused out into the environment, and it symbolizes something. Just like the fragrance of the Roman triumph, it symbolizes something. It's a testimony of something, and in this case, it's a testimony of the love and devotion of Mary for her Lord. He's raised her brother from the dead. He is her everything. And this thing is expensive. It's, it's representative of her very life. And she is pouring out this perfume on his feet in, in acknowledgement of who he is. She's pouring out her life for him shortly before he pours out his life for her. It's such a beautiful story and testimony of self-sacrifice and unity with Christ. Think about the fragrance that produces. But it offended one person. It still offended somebody. It offended Judas. Um, And it exposed his heart. It exposed his heart. And he couldn't help himself when he smelled that fragrance of devotion. He had to express his disgust. He had to express his contempt with her devotion. And um, it exposed his heart. He did just that. It exposed his greed. So for her, it was the fragrance of life leading to life. And for him, for Judas, it was the fragrance of death leading to death. And I want to point out something I find is very important here. Judas's reaction and his contempt and rejection of her sacrifice did not change its value to Jesus. What was his response? His response was, the poor will always be among you, but I won't be. Leave her alone. <laughs> Its beauty wasn't tarnished by his rejection. So you, even when your life of devotion, even when you share the gospel by whatever means you do it, it's, and it's rejected or it brings contempt, it's still glorifying to God. It's still acceptable to him. We can trust him with the hearts of men, with the hearts of people like Judas, to convert them and to judge them. Just know that you, being the fragrance of Christ, can bring about two very different reactions, and that's okay. Just expect that. Don't let it harden your heart when someone rejects that. Something that you give so vulnerably, so willingly, and out of a place of pure devotion, someone still might reject that. And that's just the way it is. We continue on. So that's the fragrance part. There's another um, aspect of this that you can also follow in a concordance that leads to a really cool conclusion that I just found so fun while I was kind of digging deeper into this. You can take a closer look at the word triumph. If you look that up in a concordance, see where else it occurs in the New Testament, it's going to take you to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed, there's our word, over them in him. Look at this. This triumph is the same 
as the one that we've been talking about. Do you see the public display element? It's the same, same type of theme. Um, so we can picture here these disarmed uh, rulers, principalities, powers, authorities of the spiritual realm. We can picture them as part of the spoils. We can see them as part of the vanquished in Christ's uh, victory parade. They're in chains. They're the ones that are subdued and shamed and being led to their destruction. And I think this is so cool that the Roman triumph was very much a spiritual and religious affair. The whole time that they were doing this, they were sacrificing things to their gods because they attributed the victory to their gods. And so they were sacrificing all these things to them in the process of that. Those same gods, along with the gods of Egypt that BJ has been talking about, they're all now rounded up and in Christ's victory prayed. They're all defeated. They're all conquered in the triumph of Yahweh and his Messiah. It's like Jesus is like, I'm going to take your thing and make it my thing. And now you're, the, you're, you're in the spoils and you're on display. You're the one that's ashamed. I just think that is amazing. What a picture of the all-encompassing victory of Jesus. All things being brought into subjection to him. And as I thought about that, I just thought, what are words to define encompassing something? And it made me think of Jesus swallowing up evil and death being swallowed up. And that'll take you to Isaiah chapter 25. I'm just going to read this to you because it's just such a celebration of the totality of Jesus's victory. It says, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. It's the upside down kingdom. The cross was intended to bring this public shame on Jesus. They executed people in these terrible ways to make an example of them and say, look at this person. You don't want to be them, right? This is what happens when you defy the authorities. And it wasn't just the human authorities, but it was the spiritual authorities as well. But in reality, in that moment, the cross was the means by which Jesus triumphed. The cross was the means by which Jesus brought shame on his enemies and exposed them, disarmed, and defeated them. The upside-down kingdom. It's amazing. So here's a question I want to leave you with, just something to think about as you go on through your days. The way that our scripture is worded for today we look at this, if you look at verse 15 here, it says, we are the fragrance of Christ. So there's this element where we just are the fragrance of Christ. When you've been made new, a new creation, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. You just are. You are, even unintentionally, the fragrance of Christ wherever you go. And also it says, oh, here it is. <laughs> It also says that through us, he spreads the aroma of the knowledge everywhere. So to me, we are it, but also through us, 
He spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. And to me, that speaks about some kind of agency. It speaks, it brings up thoughts of cooperation. Like, I have some kind of part to play. I have some level of cooperation I need to give when it comes to the efficacy of my being a fragrance spreader of Jesus to those around me. Which brings up a question. Where do we, where are we most fragrant? Like, where do we primarily practice our Christianity? And I think increasingly since the beginning of the church, that's become here on Sundays, you know? And I don't know that that was the way it was in the beginning. You know, the being the fragrance of Christ and practicing your Christianity was so woven into just daily life, every single thing you did. And that was how the church grew in the beginning. It wasn't by church activities and all that. It was just by Christians existing among other people. And that fragrance just spread the knowledge of Christ and, and people came to believe. So I just want to ask you and myself, um, how much am I participating in being the fragrance of Christ when I'm not here on a Sunday, when I'm just out in my daily life? Because wherever we go, we are, and we hopefully are increasingly becoming the fragrance of Christ to those around us. Um, We carry that incense everywhere in our daily lives, everywhere we go. So let's keep that in mind as we go about our days, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we believe you that we are the fragrance of Christ, and I ask that you also increase that in us, Lord. Help us to come into cooperation with you, Lord. Uh, Quicken us to your voice in our daily lives, Lord. Help us to minister to those around us, to influence them for the gospel, Lord. And I pray that you would make this something that just pours out of us, not something we do or that it would just become the end of who we are everywhere that we go, that it would almost even be unintentional, unintentional, that that um, coming into contact with you would just be a consequence of coming into contact with us, Lord. I pray that you would just bring that about in everyone here, Lord. Glorify yourself in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.